Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Abdul El Sayed. His new book is Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic. In this book, Abdul traces the life of a young idealist, weaving together powerful personal stories and fascinating forays into history and science. Abdul diagnoses an underlying epidemic afflicting our country, an epidemic of insecurity. And to heal the rifts this epidemic has created, he lays out a new direction for the progressive movement. It's a really great book, and we had a great time talking about it. I give you Abdul El Sayed. Abdul, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. You've written a new book, Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic. Now, you're an epidemiologist. I, I'm imagining when you started writing this book, were, had the pandemic hit yet when you started? Or, hit, could, or had you been working on it well before then? No, the, the, the book came out actually March 31st. I had finished my final touches uh by July night of 2019, so nobody knew what an epidemiologist was, and it turns out that uh, that when the book actually came out, everybody was a uh, you know an armchair epidemiologist on Twitter. So uh, there's that. Now you're an epidemiologist. You've also run for the governorship of Michigan. You ran for governor in that was in the 2018 election, right? That's right. And it's you you come from uh, uh, an Egyptian background, and I, I'm struck. You tell a story early in the book where you realize the kind of privileges and rights that come with being an American, you, you kind of liken it to like a control study group, right? Where you go to Egypt and spend some time. And that was an eye-opening experience for you. I mean, what, what, what did you take away from your, what le- life lessons did you take away from your time back in Egypt that, that shaped your own journey, both professionally and politically in America? Yeah, I mean, so many. Um, you know, number one, the, my, the privileges that I have uh, having been born and raised in this country and uh, with the educational opportunities that I had um, are frankly an accident of history. And you know, I, I came to respect that so much more um, by spending time where uh, in the place where my, my father grew up um, with my cousins who you know, my grandmother would always take the time to remind me were, were just as smart, if not smarter, you know, better looking, taller, all of these things. Um, but she'd remind me I, only, I had opportunities and I got to see those the contrast between what I was living and what I could have lived uh, live in living color in my own cousins, and um, a realization that um, that that accident of history uh, it's owed something. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, you know, I was lucky not to grow up uh, in poverty. Uh, I had two parents in my household; both of them had great jobs and they were well educated. Um, but I, I still had a front row seat. To what poverty means for so many people, and deep, profound poverty. Um, and I, I think it 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 softened my heart to uh, what it means to live uh, between needs rather than between wants. And um, and then the third is just how big the world is, um, uh, and uh, you know the the impact that our 
uh, footprint in the world as Americans has on the rest of the world. Um, you know, thinking about my cousins and, and, and their, their conceptions of what America was and who we were based on, you know, how we operated in the world was profound. And then the, the last one, um, was, was just a, a recognition of uh, what we have in democracy and how quickly that can go away. Um, I remember one time my grandmother had told me, you know, here you can't say anything bad about the, about the, the president. This is not the America. And, um, and so, you know, the first thing I did the, the next time we went out was start using the, the choice words that my cousins had taught me about the then president, Hosni Mubarak. And my grandmother, um, you know, flipped out and pulled me inside and she said, you can't do that. I told you you can't do that. I said, see, it's fine. We're fine. Like nothing, nothing's happening until that evening when plainclothes cops came to the house. Um, and my grandfather right, asked me, where is your uh, passport? And I, I sort of pulled out my passport. I gave it to him and he, he waved it like, like an emblem um, uh, or an amulet against, uh, you know, against what, uh, what the, what the cops, you know, were, were, were trying to say. Um, and, uh, and that that passport, my freedom of speech as an American, protected me even three thousand miles away. And so, you know, what we're fighting for right now is um, that we maintain that because uh, it is fleeting and it is so precious. Yeah. What would have happened to you had you not had a passport? You think? Like if I was one of my cousins and I didn't have that American passport, I, I probably would have been disappeared. Um, cops would think nothing of dragging me off to some prison somewhere and you know interrogating me, torturing me, beating me up. And then, you know, if I'm lucky, I get out. And if I'm not, then nobody hears from me again. Um, and that happens routinely in, in countries all over the world, Egypt in particular. It's interesting. You you are on the Democrat and the left kind of uh, Bernie Sanders sort of AOC movement in the Democratic Party. You're, you're a very self-styled progressive and and somebody who who identifies religiously. I mean, you're a Muslim. You take your faith seriously. I wonder how that plays out because it seems that, I mean, one of the most reliable predictors it tends to be in, in American politics right now is if, for instance, among uh, uh, whites, if you go to church three or more times a, a month, you're almost guaranteed to be a Republican, right? It's one of the number one predictors. So I'm wondering how the how you're seeing religion play out in the progressive movement that, you're, that you've kind of come up in and been involved in. Mm. Well, I, I am proud um, of my faith, and I, um, I, I, I find a lot of... Uh, a lot of motivation, a lot of inspiration uh, in my faith, and um, so much of it is founded in this call to justice. Uh, you know, in the Quran, it says, "If you want to seek proximity to God, do justice in the world." And um, and I take that very seriously. There's a saying of the Prophet uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him. Uh, he said, "If if if you were to see injustice in the world, you should seek to change it with your hands. And if you can't change it with your hands, you should change it with your tongue." If you can't change it with your tongue, at least change it in your heart. But understand that that is a mark of, of low faith. Um, and and so there is a strong call to justice in, in, in the Muslim tradition. And I see that, you know, not just consistent with my ideals as a progressive, but also consistent with the history of progressive change in America. Um, so much of the, the, the radical civil rights change came out of the black church. Um, and uh, I think they're, they're deeply consistent um, that uh, you, would, you would seek to fight for something bigger than you um, if you believe in something bigger than you. Um, at the same time, I've, I've, I've got so many colleagues who uh, have different faiths or no faith at all, um, and they fight for something that is bigger than them. And you know the, the, the source of that or the inspiration of that may be different, um, but it's the same fight. And so I, 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 I am always saddened when uh, people use faith as a means to divide. 
rather than to unite and to bring together around something that is so much bigger than any one of us. And for me, I've always I've always sought to uh, to live out my faith in a way that calls to justice and unity um, rather than than injustice and division. Um, and, and that's how I think about it. You, you tell an interesting story in the book when you were selected to be your college graduation speaker. This is, you know, the, the, the big university, 60,000 pe- people at the graduation. And you're sharing the platform with none other than Bill Clinton. And he actually remarked on your eloquence and asked, you know, per, like privately to you and asked if you were going to run for office. And you said to him that, that people with a name like yours don't get to run for public mm-hmm. office, right? What, but you did. So what changed in you? I mean, what changed from that 22-year-old student to the guy who ran a bold progressive campaign for the governorship yeah. of Michigan? Um, you know, that, that was 2007. And uh, in 2008, uh, another dude with a funny name ran for and won the highest office in the land. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've got a lot of criticisms of, um, of, of, of some of Obama's policies, but it was the first time I ever saw myself in a politician. And I'm really grateful uh, for him and the sacrifices he and his family made um, to, to show people like me that we could be included in, uh, in, in our politics in America. Um, and that, that was part of it. The other part of it was also that I did not believe at that point that politics was necessary for change. I thought that as a physician and an epidemiologist that I was going to be able to take on so many of the causes of ill health and health inequalities um, without having to engage the political space. And I think my career is a process in learning how the world worked um, and recognizing that so much of what we get wrong in our society isn't because we don't know enough uh, and isn't because we don't have enough. It is because we systematically make the wrong choices about where we put our resources and ignore what we already know. And for me, my, 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 my decision to run for office was out of that recognition and out of a realization that I felt like I had a responsibility uh, to step up. And then, you, you know, in that moment, it was, it was early 2017 when I made the decision. Um, I had watched uh, the Flint water crisis happen live um, as a health commissioner in a nearby city uh, and was you know, involved in a lot of the cleanup effort um, at the state level, only to appreciate that, frankly, the, the, the state administration that had caused the water crisis had no intention uh, of, of, of fixing it. They wanted to put paper on it. I um, watched Donald Trump run for and win the presidency after Barack Obama. And um, and I knew that in that moment that I could do a good job given the work that I had done at the health department and that the country could really benefit from hearing a story about who we are and who we want to be. And you know, I was raised by my father, who was an Egyptian immigrant, and my stepmother, who um, who was a daughter of the American Revolution, born and raised in the middle of Michigan. And so, um, you know, my very existence and my upbringing is a testament to what happens when we come together. Um, and I felt like I could share that and uh, hope to inspire us to, 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 to be the kind of America again um, that believed in uh, our mission and our ideals and hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. Um, and, and so that's what really motivated me to run. Yeah, I was struck in your book when you talk about when you're in Michigan working in public health and, and they were shutting down the water of people that were poor. And you tell the story of going in someone's bathroom and visiting, you realize there's no water in their toilet and they've got like bottles of water in the bathroom. And it, it was shocking to read 
of you, about your encounters with people in the city, uh, in the Detroit like system, that they're just completely, we're completely indifferent to the plight and just saying this is above your pay grade, there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, that that had to be debilitating and, and just so disheartening dealing with those people. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I loved my work at the health department, but one of the parts of it that was frustrating was just the degree to which people had gotten inured to all of the bad stuff that happened every day. Um, and, and water shutoffs was just one example of it. And I, I felt like there, there needed to be change at the, uh, at the, at the, at the political level um, that brought these issues to the fore and insisted that we looked at them. I, I, I'm curious, uh, as an epidemiologist who has devoted their life to public health, it, it, it must be a nightmare to watch the COVID response because it seems like if this is like an MRI for the country, it seems like we've got some really, it seems like our whole body is a mess, that we've got these chronic and systemic conditions. That are, I mean, I was just looking today on the New York Times Corona site. We're up 14% in cases in the past two weeks and we're up 1% on deaths. And it's just, you know, we're the richest country in the world with arguably the most scientific resources and things. And I mean, it, what are, why can't we fix that? Why can't we get a handle on this? Well, you know, it, it, as you mentioned, Scott, it's it's not just that we have science. It's not the problem of what we don't know. Um, and it's, it's, it's not the problem that we don't have resources. The problem is that we're unwilling to invest in one another through collective action. And there is no public health without, without collective action. Every time somebody chooses to wear a mask, they're doing that, yes, for them, but they're also doing that uh, for everyone around them. Every time uh, a, a governor or a mayor makes a hard decision uh, to lock down um, uh, a, a community, they're not doing this because they just want to kill business. They're doing it because uh, we have to make a collective investment in our collective well-being and stopping the transmission of this disease is the best way to be able to bring business back because people don't go and buy stuff when they're afraid that they're going to get sick and die. Um, and so this is not a problem of lack of resources. It's a problem of lack of will and lack of trust. And part of the point that I tried to make in the book is that insecurity is debilitating because it leaves us constantly asking, what are they going to take away from me now? Right. And when you're asking, what are they going to take away from me now? You're not asking, what are we going to gain? And that is where we are right now. We are suffering an epidemic of insecurity. And this insecurity is what's robbing us of the ability to invest in one another through collective action, which is you know, glaringly necessary right now. Um, and, you know, we're not willing to do it. And so it is, this is a cultural issue. It's not a, a technical issue and it's not a, a financial issue. It is a cultural issue in our country. Yeah, it's strange. I've talked to a lot of Canadian friends uh, over the past couple of months who are, you know, just one border away and dealing with the same pandemic. And they just can't believe we've politicized the public health crisis that we have. I mean, they, 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 they don't understand. They're asking me, like, how do you guys do this? I mean, how do you even make this about politics? It's not about politics. I mean, is that part of the problem? It's strange that, and that seems kind of unique to, to this country that we politicized it to the degree we have. Yeah, no, no other country in the world has politicized it like we have. And it is a function of I think a, a perfect storm. Um, part of it is that uh, we are a large country with a large, diverse set of viewpoints. But those viewpoints have been driven further and further apart via a set of structural mechanisms. One of them is just physical segregation. We don't live amongst one another anymore. But then also institutional segregation. You used to have in this country institutions that brought people together, whether it was a bowling league or a church. Like those are places that people with different um, socioeconomic backgrounds or racial uh, backgrounds or even religious backgrounds in the case of the bowling league, 
um, would come together and see one another as, as people. Those have disintegrated. And instead, we've replaced them with um, with electronic spaces, right, and social media. And the problem with social media is that social me- media literally segregates us further, intellectually, psychologically. Uh, we are algorithmically sorted, um, and uh, and w- we are delivered information um, that 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 forces us deeper and deeper into our worldview, um, rather than asks us to consider um, the world from a different perspective. And I think um, between those things, we are now in a situation where um, we haven't just uh, we haven't just sort of segregated. We have we have started to vilify the other simply for being the other. Um, and you know the, the point I always make to folks is like I don't I don't vote Democrat because I like the, the color blue. Um, and I don't I don't you know vote against Republicans because I hate the color red. Um, this is not a a team sport where it's your team versus the other team. This is about a set of public policies and the ways that they deliver for people. And if you hate another group of people simply because they're on the other side. Then how can you invest in the kind of public policy that will invest in them? And so, to me, right, the the the, the poverty that is experienced in uh, low-income urban uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly black uh, is a terrible thing, and racism plays an important role in that. But there's also poverty among uh, low-income white folks in rural communities, um, and we've got to be considering considered and thoughtful about that too. I don't care if they vote Republican and they don't care uh, a, a lick about um, about progressive politics per se. I care that those kids get educated. I care that they have clean water. I care that they have uh, food to eat and a good job and a, and a, and a, and a roof over their heads. Um, and that's because of my beliefs in, uh, in, in what government ought to be able to do for all of us. And we've got to keep that in mind um, as we think about where we go from here, because this really is a unique and treacherous time. You mentioned social media. In, in, the, in the conclusion of the book, you have 13 policy prescriptions for the country. And one of them is regulating social media. I, I remember watching hearings, Senate hearings with Mark Zuckerberg. And I think it was Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah said to him, well, you provide all these services for free. How can you give all these pe- these people, your users, these things for free? And Zuckerberg looks confusingly and says, uh, we sell ads. And I thought at that moment, how in the world is the Senate going to regulate mm. social media if the people that are questioning Zuckerberg don't understand the basics of selling ads is how they make money? I mean, I'm just thinking, do we even have a chance with 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 regulation? And so often, you know, with any like any big business, right? You you bring them in to help write the regulations that then advantage the big corporations that the only people that can afford to to abide by the regulations that their lawyers and stuff make. You know, I mean, it just seems the possibilities of regulating social media uh, seem so grim. But tell me I'm wrong. Tell me you've got some hope that we can do it. Well, I'll say this. Um, I think people are starting to get wise to how they work. Um, and I also think that um, that there are some simple things that we can do uh, that we can all agree upon. Like they should not be able to buy or copy into oblivion uh, other platforms that can uh, compete with them, which is what Facebook does. I don't know if you saw, you know, on Instagram, folks who are on Instagram, Instagram just uh, released their new Reels feature, which is just basically a knockoff TikTok. Um, but it's now TikTok on Instagram, right? And, um, you know, the, the, the Stories feature was a knockoff on Snapchat. And so, like, that should not be And, and that's allowed. what you're hoping for now as a tech company, right? You're not hoping to be a competitor. You're hoping to build something that gets acquired. That's exactly right. You want to sell off, um, and and it's just well known that you know you can sell to one of the large companies, you know Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, now Amazon, 
And, you know, if you can do that, great. And if you can't, then you don't survive. Um, so that, that's that's part of it. So breaking them up is, is, I think, really important and stopping them from being able to uh, to just acquire and acquire, right? In the same way that we leverage antitrust regulation to stop, uh, you know, businesses from um, from from becoming trusts, we should do the same thing with social media. The second um, is thinking about liability, right? And uh, social media companies ought to be liable for uh, the mistruths that are spread on those platforms. And if you did that, um, and they were open to to lawsuits, they would be a lot bit better about regulating. Uh, what happens on that space, just so that it meets the basic, uh, the, the, the basic um, agreed upon norms and mores uh, that exist in other kinds of speech. A third one is bots. Like, why should bots be allowed, right? It, I understand that you have your right to free speech, and I have my right to free speech, but I don't have the right to buy a bunch of bots that then uh, accelerate my speech um, and, and, and make it viral. I just don't think that that's okay. Um, and then the third, um, I mean, to be the fourth, uh, is that um, I, I think we've got to be really thoughtful about about how we sell certain kinds of advertisement, right? And if you're selling a good uh, or a service, that's one thing. But if you're selling a viewpoint um, and you're leveraging a platform that is intended uh, to be able to change and shift and share viewpoints, that's a real problem. And um, and so I think rethinking uh, what kind of advertising can be done on social media. Uh, is perfectly within the bounds of 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 the First Amendment. And so uh, it's going to be hard, and I think you're right. We're going to have to have some churn in the leaders who are making these decisions because you know people who grew up uh, social media native have a, a far better understanding of how social media works than people who didn't. Um, but I do think that uh, it is going to be critical to saving our democracy to be able to do that because right now, uh, whether it's us tearing ourselves apart or you know, the Internet Research Agency, Russia's, um, you know, social media troll farm arm uh, is, 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 is catalyzing us, tearing each other apart. Um, it's not working. It's not working for a democracy. And it's, it's hurting us. And it's, it's frankly a bastardization of the idea of free speech. I'm interested. Are you a tall guy? No, I'm very short, actually. Like how tall are you? Five, eight. How tall are you? Not very well, it's not that bad. I'm 5'8", but because you remarked in meeting Bernie Sanders that he was a lot taller than you thought he was, right? Yeah. He's, he was, uh, he was he's several like inches taller than me. <laughs> yeah, he's like almost six foot tall, right? Or he's like six yeah. foot. I ne- I was shocked when I read your book because I picture him as sort of a short, hunched over guy. He's a, he, But you say he's cast a bigger physical presence than that. He is. Um, You know, it's funny because a lot of people think I'm tall, um, but I'm, I'm not. I'm 5'8". I'm um, and he is a he's a he's a big guy um and he sort of comes off as 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 sort of the you know your your, your grandfather that's um that, that sort of doesn't occupy as much space but he's a he's a tall guy almost six foot tall and and you see all all six feet of it um so it was uh it was it was striking because it's you're right like that's not how you picture him in your mind's eye yeah i wonder what's he like i mean you've 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 met him before and you know he i think he helped your campaign what, what mm-hmm. what's he like was he was he what you expected um exactly what i expected uh, he is the, the the thing about Bernie that um, all of us who love him love the most is that he is truly who he is. Bernie is not putting on a show. He is not pretending to be somebody who's not. He's not uh, acting for the camera or for the microphone. Uh, Bernie Sanders is the same Bernie Sanders that you will see, you know, in uh, in private versus in public, in large groups of people, in small groups of people. He truly and deeply cares about those things. And I think one of the things that's made him so successful in this moment and sort of answers the paradox uh, of why um, so many young people in a moment like this love this this 78-year-old, 79-year-old politician is that he is authentic. And I think 
we are part of a generation that has been um, that has that has been uh, overperformed to in so many ways that we can see through the act. And I think when you look at Bernie, you're like, this guy is not putting on an act. This is exactly who he is and you know exactly what he cares about. And he's been caring about those things since before we were born. Um, and so it really is a uh, an, an honor uh, to have been supported by him and to have supported him uh, in his election uh, bid in 2020. And, um, you know, I, I'm really grateful for his, uh, his, his influence on me and uh, his mentorship. And, you know, one of the things he told me, which was really ironic, uh, when I was um, when I was campaigning, I'll never forget. I'm this 33 year old upstart candidate, and this is a 78 for at that point 77 year old man. And I asked him, I was like, "What's your advice?" He said, "Stay close to young people." <laughs> and I looked at him, I was like, "I am the young people." Um, but uh, but his point was that you know they're going to show you where the world is going, and you need to be really really uh, to listen to them. And I, that's most politicians don't think that way. Most politicians look at their own sort of evolution in their career and say, "Well." When I was young, I used to think like this, and now I've gotten older, and I realized that I was wrong. Um, rather than saying, actually, there is some, there is some truth, there is some deep truth in the idealism and feelings and emotions of young people, and you have to listen to that and dignify it, um, and 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 help to help to nurture it and help to uh, give it a pathway forward. And you know that is really really remarkable um, for someone uh, for someone like him. One of the things that I noticed at the convention, the Democratic National Convention this year, and I think it's gone. It's an issue that's run right through to the campaign to the state is there seems to be this issue where on one hand, you know, you had people saying you had Republicans, other people saying other moderates saying, look, I know a lot of people are worried that Joe's Biden's going to leave them behind and go far left. No, 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 that's not what's going to happen. And yesterday, Biden was saying, you know, look, I beat the Democratic Socialists. I'm not one of them. And that, then you have people like Bernie saying, well, he's um, helping shape the agenda. He's the most progressive candidate we've had. And so that seems like a an, a, an advertising problem for Democrats these days, right? Like, how do you is is this camp? It, what is it? Is is Biden this kind of moderate that is it, that uh, people that are worried that the Democratic socialists are going too far? Is he is he the guy that beat them and is going to keep things uh, in, in a way that's at least recognizable um, and, and gradualist in reform, or is he really uh, you know in in step with uh, the more progressive? visionaries in the party. I mean, I don't, how, how do the Democrats deal with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think I think this speaks to a um, a moment of profound and very quick evolution in the party. And that's real. And that's happening. Um, you know, if you pull uh, older Democrats versus younger Democrats, they don't they don't always agree on on, on, on a lot of the direction forward. But, you know, the 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 the, the nature of the world is that young people build the future. Um, uh, the, 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 the other point I'll just make here is that Joe Biden's always been a very smart politician around uh, finding the, the, the middle of a conversation and helping to, to usher that conversation as it changes. And he talked about himself as a gateway to the future. Um, and I'll point back in our history and look at someone like LBJ, right? LBJ was 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 not even a moderate um, for most of his time in the Senate. For most of his time in the Senate, uh, LBJ uh, tried to squash civil rights uh, legislation as a Southern Democrat. Um, and then when he got elected president, right, in his own term uh, after uh, his his partial term uh, after John F. Kennedy's assassination, um, he was a progressive's progressive, but he was doing it in a way. Um, that uh, that really made sure that he was able to hold the middle uh, of the political spectrum as he did it. And what that means for those of us who believe in policies like Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, uh, and, and free college, um, is that our job is to push him, right? 
he's not necessarily naturally going to go there himself. Our job is to push him on those policies um, and to drive them forward and recognize that, you know, for him, uh, this is going to be a calculus about where the country can go and where people are. And so, um, you know, the, 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 he is not Bernie Sanders and he will never be Bernie Sanders. Um, he never was Bernie Sanders. And he even tries to, to, to say that. Uh, either it doesn't understand politics or doesn't understand Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. Um, but uh, but um, I think he recognizes that the country is changing and that the the moment right now requires a level of leadership and a profound investment in the in the work of government um, that uh, will very well, if he's successful, will very well have to look like, um, you know, a, a, a an FDR or an LBJ presidency simply to solve the problems that exist in front of us. Um, and so I think these ideological debates are a little bit less founded. I think the bigger question is, what kind of policies do we need to solve the big picture problems that we uh, need to solve? Um, where is the balance of power in American politics right now? Um, and where do we go from here? The last point I'll say is this. Like, on the other side, um, Donald Trump has fundamentally hijacked the Republican Party, right? I mean, he's no longer a lowercase c conservative party. You just can't call it that anymore. Um, and so, you know, this is the party of white, like his is the party of white supremacy, uh, and um, and that's what they're playing to. And um, and so, you know, we're having this conversation about about where Bernie is and, and uh, or where Biden is relative to Bernie and others. My point is like, look, that dude's a white supremacist. He's a fascist. He very well may try and undo democracy. Right. Like if 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 you're really that focused on, you know, where this president is on an ideological spectrum that still fits within the bounds of democracy. Uh, and um, and democratic norms and mores, you're missing the show, right? The show is that that dude's a fascist. He cannot be allowed to have another four years in the White House. Um, and you know, if he does, he would radically remake uh, America's image so that people like me um, and so many others um, just just are, are are told constantly that we don't belong here, um, even more so than than we already are. I, I, it's interesting because you bring up the good, the Green New Deal. I had a a, a guy uh, on the podcast. Oh uh, gosh, this was in 2019. His name is Joshua Goldstein. He wrote a book called "A Bright Future: How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow." Now he is a pretty progressive guy. His uh, is, is a self-identified liberal. He's got a PhD in international affairs or something, and he went into this thing pretty open-minded. Because um, his passion is climate change, he thinks it's the number one issue, and I get it is kind of the number one issue. Because if we don't have a planet, there's no other issues, right? <laughs> like basically, it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't deal with in, income inequality if there's no right. planet to on which to earn an income. Um, his conclusion was that that nuclear power is an essential part of the solution, and he looked at Sweden, which has like a zero carbon footprint, and it's renewables and nuclear. Because compared to Germany, who on on a good day can get seventy percent of its energy from renewables but the other 30 percent is coal which then just nixes out all the prog- all the carbon progress they made with the renewables and he looks at the places like france other places that use nuclear power and and have just really reduced their carbon footprint i mean but that seems to be something that most progressives are not open to and i'll tell you quite honestly until i read the book i was not i was not very open to and then he just systemically kind of from a progressive perspective dissected all the arguments against it. and i was like wow I've, I've just i never thought of it thought through the issue this clearly i'm wondering do you think there'll be a place where where for the sake of climate change progressives could take another look at nuclear power so i'm, I'm not an expert on um on clean energy tech uh, what I will say is that you know the world is changing fast, and part of our job and our responsibility is to innovate uh, newer and safer ways uh, to go about producing um, 
uh, renewable energies. Uh, you know, I, I, the, the, the other the other point here is that um, I don't I, I, you know, the challenge with 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 nuclear energy is not that it doesn't produce clean energy. It's that there are so many risks uh, implied in it. And we have watched as those risks have uh, fundamentally devastated whole communities. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we have to weigh um our pursuit of, uh, of of clean energy against the potential harm to people and the planet um, in doing that. And I think the most important thing that we can do is continue to invest in uh, better tech and better understandings of, of energy sources. I'm almost certain that there are multiple sources of renewable energy that we have not even tapped yet. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's the corporations that are so focused on fossil fuels have tapped many, many new technologies. I mean, fracking is a new technology. Uh, intended upon releasing the sort of the molecular uh, uh, fossil fuels that just exist in shale. Um, and so, you know, we can do the same if we're willing to invest in it. And that's where I'd like to go. And so, you know, I, I think it it would be um, it would be sh- a, 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 a an over um, commitment to short termism to say that, you know, we can't do it without it, because I do believe that if we're willing to invest in the tech, we can find other ways. You, when you ran for governor, you ran against Gretchen Whitmer, right? I did. Did you debate her? I did. What was it like? What is she like? I mean, because she's I mean, she's a figure that has become kind of a national figure. She probably wouldn't be had we not had the coronavirus. Right. But because she was she's been pretty aggressive in in you know, kind of lockdowns and things like this early on, she became a kind of polemical figure. I mean, what, what is she like? I mean, you, you've had the unique perspective of getting to debate her. I, you know, I, I'm sure you guys had some conversations, you know, just cause you're at debates and campaigning and things. I mean, what's she like as a, as a, as a person? Yeah, look, she's a, she's a fine individual. I, um, I think, uh, she's handled this crisis, uh, exceptionally well and our state's the better off for it. Um, you know, I think it'll be interesting to watch how national politics evolves over the next several years. Uh, but you know, she is she has uh, stood up to a lot of hatred and a lot of pushback uh, for enacting policies that have definitely saved lives. Um, so you know, I, I've got nothing but uh, but credit for her on that front. If you were governor right now, let's say you had won that election, right, and you're not, um, you know, you're not back in public health and stuff full time, you're a governor. How what what would you have done in Michigan in light of the Corona outbreak? Yeah, are, are there things you would have done differently than you did? Yeah, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I mean, there are a couple of things I probably would have um, done differently. The, the the difference obviously is that I, I would have been the only governor for miles who'd ever actually done an epidemic response before. Um, and so, you know, the the recognition of what we're dealing with and the ability to sort of understand the the kind of exponential dynamics um, of this kind of uh, of, of threat um, is is something that, as an epidemiologist, you learn how to do. Um, and so, you know, I think the the, the lockdowns were critical. I, I think I, I I like to say that I would have started them early, but that's that's really hard um, to know what you would have done based on the intelligence that you have. Um, I think uh, the 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 persistence of the lockdowns was was really really critical and. Um, I thought Governor Whitmer did a great job maintaining that kind of persistent lockdown, even in the face of a lot of pressure. Um, the the other part of it is also that you know I wrote up a whole sort of um, uh, uh, a whole sort of um, guide to, to 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 how to think about this way back in in March, um, and the way that we used testing I think was all wrong. Um, we were so focused on testing people who are already sick that we did not have enough testing to to do surveillance testing in the community which really would have been important to understanding uh, where the disease was and how fast it was spreading. 
Um, I also think that, you know, testing people when they're already sick and they are presumed positive is a waste of a test. Um, and so you really want to be testing people who are exposed, uh, but not yet sick, because those are the folks who, uh, whose management you will change. Um, investment in contact tracing and, um, and, 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 and the apparatus uh, of public health, um, I think, across the country should have come earlier. But obviously, um, governors were dealing with, a, uh, frankly, a failed president. Um, and and a public health apparatus that is intended to be run from the top, and so you know it, it's really hard to really second guess um, what they did simply because there were so little resources and so little knowledge and so much malfeasance from the president that um, getting this right would have been very difficult. You've committed your life to public health, and we need more people like you uh, as we deal with this pandemic. That we really, um, you know, we, 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 so much of it is 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 learning more and 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 then committing, as you're saying, to collective action to public health. So. Thanks so much for your commitment to public health and for writing this great book, Healing Politics. I mean, it's a fantastic read. And thanks for spending some time to talk with me about it. That was my privilege. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on and uh, and thank you. And yeah, I, I do hope that we have more more folks um, getting into public health because uh, we now understand uh, as a society what happens when public health fails and we need some of our best and brightest uh, invested. So thanks for having me on. Thanks for a, a great conversation. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.